Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a guest, Anat Banyal. Now, Anat has been with us before. She is the founder of the Anat Banyal Method. She is the best-selling author of Move Into Life, Nine Essentials for Lifelong Vitality. Her newest book, Kids Beyond Limits, is getting so much acclaim, and we're going to talk about that today. Anat, welcome back to Leading Conversations. I'm so happy to be back, Cheryl, and be back with you. It is so great. It's so great. So where are you today? I'm in Marin County, California. Where are you? I am in Palo Alto, California. Beautiful. Yeah, you know, the West Coast is pretty good, pretty good living here, right? Oh, I love it. Yeah. Now, now you are, speaking of where you live, you are actually native of Israel, correct? Yes, I am. And so you've been living in the U.S. for how many years? Well, how long? I mean, you know, like most of your life or some of your life? No, no. Um, I've, lived, I've lived here for about, I'd say, 25, 25 years, I think. Mm-hmm. I have to recalculate, but in that neighborhood, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, you have you lived there long enough and you lived here long enough to really be able to get a sense of what is similar and what is different about the cultures, right? Uh, sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, yes. and if you were to sum up, um, you know, kind of in just a couple sentences, what the, what the similarities of the two cultures that you've primarily lived in are, what would that be? I think a, a few of the similarities, first of all, that, the, that both the U.S. and Israel are really true democracies, an enormous commitment to the democratic process and to freedom, and I'd say to continued social growth and evolution, working more and more towards you know, social equality, be it men, women, gays, mm-hmm. the heterosexuals, Women in the army, men in the army. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's never a clean, straight line, but it's the underlying commitment is uh, for individual freedom and justice. And I really feel that very strongly, both in Israel, in the mm-hmm. Israeli society, and in the American society. Mm-hmm. And 
I think with it comes enormous amount of innovation. Mm-hmm. Israel is in absolute numbers is the second largest uh, startups in the world, even though it only has seven and a half million people as its population. Uh-huh. It's just second to the United States. Um, and uh, just a, an enormous uh, value to education, um, perhaps in Israel even a little bit more than here in terms of its generality. Mm. Um, and uh, and a lot, uh, really a lot of innovation culturally and uh, scientifically and socially um, and uh, fundamentally thriving society. Well, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that because I have noticed uh, in the last few years, that there's an amazing amount of innovation coming out of Israel. And, and, and what I see as um, people who are, are thinking, um, to coin a phrase, outside of the box, people who are saying something is possible that others do not think is possible. And when I think about that and I think about you and the work you do, you must have really been thinking outside the box um, at a very young age because you have developed an incredibly powerful method that really takes advantage of how people's brain works, right? And so let's talk about the the method that you've developed. And, and last time you were on, on leading conversations, you explained, um, you know, how you were uh, exposed to the method that then you evolved and transformed into the work you do today. So start at the beginning and tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so um, as a actually as a practically a toddler, I was uh, introduced to Dr. Feldenkrais because my father, who is a scientist and inventor. <laughs> Um, is uh, brought him to teach his movement lessons uh, in their my parents' living room because at the time so Feldenkrais uh, you know a way to define him could be the way um, Norman Deutsch the man that wrote the book the brain that changes itself mm. wrote in his introduction to my book about Feldenkrais. Uh, re- the revolutionary scientist clinician Moshe Feldenkrais, the greatest thinker about how to improve movement in the 20th century. Uh, I would even expand that and say uh, he was the greatest thinker about understanding how to access the brain uh, to change through movement, um, something that was not considered possible, and actually most people didn't even think about it. It's not even that they considered it possible or not. It was just invisible to people. Mm. Uh, So now, you know, the conversation that the brain can change uh, and needs to change under certain conditions um, is much more common and accepted. But uh, however many years ago that was, I, I don't know, he came, it's, it's, it's 80 years ago when he came to Israel, Christ came from Europe to Israel. Uh, that was, he was like on his own, mm. literally, a lone voice. And uh, he was a physicist. He was a quantum, he was a nu- nuclear physicist. Mm. He studied and worked with the Curies, Julio Curie, Marie Curie. 
and was brought to Israel uh, by the government, actually, to start the missile research unit for the Israeli army. And my father met him through the scientific community. You know, this was a very small world then, really small. And mm. and uh, uh, so he was experimenting with his ideas, uh, and my father, who met him and really thought he was the first live genius he's ever met in his life, was very interested. So that's, and I just was little, I was three years old, and I was just walking there because there was no, ba- there were no babysitters, so I was there. <laughs> sure, yeah. Then, and then I, then I, um, you know, uh, started doing the movement lessons through my dance teacher who studied with Feldenkrais, and then when I was in grad school to become a clinical psychologist, I was looking for a way to work with people that would include movement and the feeling, the literal feeling of self, not just through words. And then I remembered, you know, those lessons I did as a child with my dance teacher, and Mm -hmm. I found Feldenkrais, and I started studying with him, and then he opened a training program in San Francisco, which I went to. And I, he was, um, I was very, very young, and he was quite old, and he needed somebody to help him while he traveled. So I was able to arrange my graduate studies so whenever he asked, I was asked to travel with him because he was getting more and more recognition and traveling around the world, I would just say yes. So I spent a lot of time with him towards the end of his life. And the last couple, three years, I worked with him. First I studied, and then I worked with him. And then when he got ill, he actually had me take over certain responsibilities in terms of his training programs. Hmm. And and then what happened is that I, 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 through my work, I worked primarily initially with musicians, dancers. That was part of my background was dance and music. So, uh, and and uh, I started also, and that I talk about my in my book Kids Beyond Limits, working with children with special needs, and that was miraculous from the very beginning. I mean, the whole thing was quite miraculous, but working with kids that. You know, a child that two years old, twenty four months, mm. twenty six months old, that never said a word, and after two sessions with me, she starts saying yes and no and starts talking, and I was like, oh wow! I mean, how did that ever happen? And and that the juxtaposition between working with high performing adults and children with special needs over time, unexpectedly for me, you know, it's this. This is the kind of the evolution of knowledge that you can't, pl- I could, certainly couldn't plan in advance. It right. Just, it just made itself, right? It uh, formed over time is I started, rec- I always knew it's about the brain, and I always knew mm. that I was somehow dancing with the brain of the person that I was working with. Mm. The, it started gelling what it is that I'm doing that actually provides the opportunity for a change. So, so, you know, those are I, the nine essentials, yeah. As you talk about um, the brain and, and I think about when um, most often when we want to make a change, we start talking to ourselves, right? We start talking about, well, just change thinking about this. Well, you know, we go right into the cognitive place. And what I'm hearing you say is that um, the cognitive may not be enough, and that somehow movement, movement of the physical body, shifts the brain's chemistry or the makeup or what happens there? 
I'm laughing because it's such a good question, and you are asking it with such a hesitant way, and I, I think I understand why, because we tend to have in our own idea of things a very strong split between physical movement and cognitive and emotional and interpersonal mm. behavior. Mm. And for me, these things, uh, I see it very differently. Uh, and I think part of why I can see it so differently and so clearly is because I work with very, very young children, mm. starting as young as a few days old. So I really witness the formation of cognitive structures as they develop and move. Ah. So, so I, I, let me tell you what, how I see it. I, call, I say that movement is the language of the brain. Mm. It's through movement that the brain gets, grows and gets organized. Any part of us that doesn't move at all does not get mapped in the brain. It doesn't exist for the brain. So, for instance, there is a condition called a brachial plexus injury, which is the nerve that innervates the arm of a child and the hand and the shoulder, wrist, you know, elbow, mm-hmm. all that. It's, it's, it's actually a number of nerves that... Um, it can get damaged at birth, mm. and uh, very often it's not completely severed. So there is a potential for regeneration. And But because of that, you know, trauma, the arm either doesn't move at all or, or, or moves very little. Mm. Now, the muscles are intact, and the bones are intact. But what doesn't doesn't happen is that there aren't the spontaneous little jerky movements that infants do mm-hmm. because there's firing coming from the brain because the link is, is severed or, or interfered with. So the, the arm doesn't get mapped in the brain. And since it doesn't get mapped in the brain, it doesn't move. The brain doesn't even know it's there. And, and, it's, and it sort of snowballs in a negative direction. Uh, the reverse also happens, by the way, when, when, let's say, a soldier loses an arm, you can get phantom mm-hmm. pains even the arm is not there. So the arm exists in the brain, but it doesn't exist really. So the brain interprets the sensations oh, in wow. crazy ways and uh, very often in painful ways. So, so the, the, the movement literally is at the heart of life. Altogether, hmm. and with a, you know, if we really you and I now stop moving, really, really, we'd be dead, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so right. I mean, we can take it all the way to the very basics here, and but the different movements and the variations, and if we talk a bit about essentials, I can talk about that. But is is the language of the brain, and but it's not movement alone, and that is where the cognition and and the so-called physical movement and the emotions, they all get kind of like they grow from the same core, mm. and that is attention, that we feel, we get sensations and we feel as we move. So movement combined with the attention to self, to the attention to the feeling of self, is what gets the brain to grow. And there's research now, you know, you mentioned you're interested in some of the brain research. There's research that shows that movement, like for somebody like you or me, automatically done, or with a little child where it's done in a way that the child is not, doesn't have a chance to feel what's going on as they're being moved, does not create any changes that can be measured in the mapping or the connections in the brain. 
But the moment the attention is brought to the feeling of self as the person you or the person you work with has while they move or are being moved, the brain starts changing actually in very, very, very huge numbers. In children, it's estimated 1.8 million new connections per second. So that's roughly 100 million per minute. That's not bad. So (laughs) I'm trying to fathom what, I mean, my goodness, (laughs) that's a lot. I mean, practically instantaneously. So in that sense, learning and change are instantaneous. That's kind of like the biological equivalent of the word transformation. Mm -hmm. So for me, transformation is literal. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I know it's like really happening. (laughs) It's not just words. In front of your eyes. And so to loop back to your question, when you introduce movement and movement with attention to the cognition, to the ideas, to what you're trying to learn or master, you are accelerating. You're not only accelerating the learning, you're actually opening possibilities for change that maybe otherwise wouldn't exist. Hmm. So... Well, I have so many questions about this, and I have questions about um, children who are autistic. I'm going to hold mm-hmm. that. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll hear what Anat has to say about that. We'll be right back. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. How can we Americans realize our dreams to earn a living? How can you pursue your dream and make money as an owner or an employee? Learn how at The American Business Person, the online weekly radio talk show hosted by Rich Killian. Today's business leaders share how to succeed and what fails. If you own a new or established business or ever hope to, you must tune in. Join us every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, and noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel or listen on demand to our archived shows. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito and our special guest today, Anat Banyel. Anat, so we were speaking about, I love what you said, movement is the language of the brain. And you talked about how 
you know, you can actually see transformation happening in a person as you're working with them. I'm curious about how this work you do it can affect in any way autistic children. Now, when I think about autistic kids, I think about how um, many of them, not all, because there's a broad spectrum of autism, but many of them don't move a lot. And if they do, it's consistent or persistent types of movement. They, many of them do not like to be touched, um, and they, they don't speak very much. So have you worked with autistic kids? Yes, uh, quite a bit. And how, what, what happens when you work with kids like that? Well, um, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll t- probably just tell a couple little stories in a minute, but first of all, autism, if uh, you look online on the definition of autism, you, what I found, at least up until now, that it's defined as a neural cognitive or neural uh, behavioral disorder. Right. And there is a lot of debate of the causes for autism, which I, I literally don't touch. I yes. have no right. expertise in that, right. and I, I'm, I sidestep this conversation completely. Right. However, I, I, I see from my observations and from the work and the outcomes uh, uh, with these kids, which I'll talk about in a minute, I see autism as a neuromovement disorder. Mm. And you actually kind of pretty casually mentioned that many of them don't move very much, and actually a lot of them are defined as clumsy if mm. they can stand and walk. And, and you know, they trip and they fall and some of them drool, and, mm-hmm. and then when they move they tend to do this repetitive a small repertory of kind of very intensely repetitive uh, movements, and many of them have either no language or language deficiencies. Yes. So, so, uh, uh, and so, I'm going to take, with your permission, you and your audience on a bit of a, a, a you know, conceptual trip for a moment. Yes. I'll do. I'll do a cognitive conceptual uh, um, movement here. Right. Perfect. <laughs> uh, and that is that the the way I think, and I'm not alone that way, of course, but the way I think about the brain is that the brain is an information system. Mm. So normally we are used to think about ourselves as a mechanical system because that's what we see. You know, the bones and the muscles, you know, get moved around. So it's just, we're a set of levers that get coordinated and organized in space, right? Mm-hmm. So, and we're used to moving objects on our desk and lifting things and putting them down, and they have weight and they have consistency and, and they, you know, objects, mechanics, yes, right? Yes, yes, And that is the world we are really familiar with. The brain is very different. The brain is not a mechanical system. It's an information system. Mm. It, it organizes action. Organization is information. So you take these bones and muscles and something has to put order to it, has to time what contracts, when, goes where. That's the brain. So the question is, what's the source of information for the brain? What is the information? How does it get it? Most people 
equate information with stimulation. So we get stimulation through our eyes, through our ears, through our skin, through our joints, through the, you know, all the different senses we get stimulation. I came to the conclusion that stimulation does not equate information. There's mm. something that has to happen before stimulation becomes information for the brain. And that is the perception of a difference. So if I look out my window and I see green and I see blue, the sky's blue and the tree leaves are green, I perceive a difference in color, which on my eyes is just a different frequency of light that falls on my eyes, right? Right. I see difference in color. And then I have information, not just about that, that there are two different colors, but that there are colors, green and blue. Right. But if I look at all the range of colors and all I see is gray, I don't know color. I might have heard other people say, but I don't know color because I don't perceive the difference in the stimulation. It falls on my eyes just like anybody else, but I don't perceive it. Mm-hmm. Well, why, why am I saying it? Because the ability of the brain to perceive differences varies. A big part of my work and a big part of what the essentials actually do, both for adults and healthy adults and high-performing adults as well as children with special needs or adults with special needs, is improve the capacity of the brain to perceive differences. And, and, and that is extremely important to understand. So you take a child... On, on the, uh, for instance, on, with autism, on the autism spectrum, from my point of view, they have a deficiency, a significant deficiency in their ability to perceive differences. That's one of the reasons why stimulation is so overwhelming for them. Hmm. So without enough capacity to perceive the distinctions in their experience without having to name it. It doesn't have to be verbal. It's, you know, babies learn to move long before they can talk, right? Right. But they don't, so it's in, from my point of view, I realized over time that the kids on the autism spectrum, it's as if they are immersed in kind of a, if you imagine a huge blender in which you blended lots of yogurt together with lots of different fruits, and then you put a a snorkel on their face and you put them into that blender and they try to see the world and they just see those bits and pieces floating around them in this kind of whitish, slightly colored, thick thing. They don't, they can't distinguish properly. They can't learn properly because of that. What I do with those kids without exception is get them, I take them where they're at. So the very first fundamental premise of, the, of my work is you don't take people to where they should be. You don't try to make people do what they're supposed to be able to do, mm. but you take them where they are. And from where they are, you start helping them perceive the differences and do little new things very close to where they are. And that's always the first of all, that's what's possible to do anyway, so why waste our time? And also, once they start doing it, it's easier for them to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and usually actually quite quickly, the brain gets better at perceiving differences, at feeling what's going on, at seeing what's going on, at hearing what's going on. 
I have had numerous times, not only always the case, that I get a child, uh, we just had one a couple weeks ago, three-and-a-half-year-old girl, usually it's boys, but, you know, more often it's boys than girls on the, with autism, but three-and-a-half walked, but very unstable, you know, and tripping a lot, yeah. no language, a lot of sounds kind of pouring out of her mouth nonstop, but kind of like no, nothing we can distinguish, yeah. and, and doesn't respond to her name, doesn't respond to verbal instructions, sort of like a random cute little thing moving in space, very, very difficult. Mm. Within the first week, she started saying two words, you know, up to two words sequence, completely responds to language, that means she's, she, got, she started getting passive language, moving a lot better, and relating. Like, I'd give you this, it's very touching. And I walked into the center, and I gave her one session. I gave her a consult. And then the rest of the work was done with my, you know, team teachers. We work as yes. a team. Mm-hmm. She grabs my hand and walks me to the table where she got her last couple lessons, so I work on her. Uh, That's a girl that was out to lunch, so to speak. Wow. I've had how, old, and, how old is she? She she she's uh, three and a half. Three and a half. I, I, we have uh, the little ones, of course, because of the developmental process. You know, it's better to get them sooner rather than later. But they start thinking. You see, you can see that through mm-hmm. them, they start realizing. You know, they kind of like discover that they are there. You think, how can they not be aware of their own legs or arms or back or whatever? Since they've had it all this time and they're carrying it around, well, guess what? They're not. It's very blurry for them. They have a very vague sense of everything, so they can't organize action properly. They can't organize thought clearly. It's very, very hard, and they start doing it, and they get good. So I'll tell you a story about a 13-year-old a autistic boy. Yeah, I don't know, teenager. Very verbal. His, pair, his father is a writer, you know, an author. Yes. Mother also very highly educated, lovely people, So he and he happens to talk. But what he said was kind of like, what are you talking about kind of thing, completely dissociated mm-hmm. from himself. It's, unless you encounter it, it's hard to imagine somebody talking, and it is sort of like meaningless because it's not anchored in the feeling of self. It's not anchored in feelings. It's not anchored in sensations. And I caught it in a nanosecond, and because he learned how to manipulate words and sentences well, people around him didn't get that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, I of course, got it in a nanosecond, me with my background and my Israeli temperament. So I I just started really kind of bumping against his language, so to speak, in my responses. So through actually very often a lot of questions where he, he got to confront the need to understand, to have meaning to what he said. But I did it very much combined with doing movement with him and getting greater differentiation because what I discovered, that's also very important. When the brain doesn't perceive differences, and this, kid, this boy, for instance, stands and walks, I think he has a genius brain because I couldn't walk like he walks. He, his brain had so much less information to work with 
and still figure it out standing and walking. So I flip the picture mm. and say, if he could figure out how to walk with so little information, imagine how much better he can do with a little more information. Oh. And and uh, it, 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 and I really got him to the point where he was able to start saying, oh, this leg now feels longer. I feel lighter. I like this. I don't like this. I'm uncomfortable about this. It was just, it's just amazing. And the kind of changes you get, so this is definitely cognitive, but it was driven through literal facilitation for the brain to start doing its job better, which is to perceive differences, get information, and start using it to organize action, thought, etc. And I so want that... to say, because if any parent, just one more thing, I got an email on their way, it was on their third visit. They come down from Seattle, and they, on their, you know, they, they get a bunch of lessons and then fly back home. And they, the parents emailed me and said that in the airport, you know, they were waiting for the plane, and he ate for the first time in his life, not being a picky eater. He actually said to the parents, I'm ready to try the food, not a problem. Now, what's the connection between him, mm. what I did with him, and him being able to eat better? You know, I can't give you a direct explanation, but I can say to you that I have noticed it over and over and over again with kids on the autism spectrum. You know, it's just fascinating because what you're saying about them kind of being in this soup and they can't see their way out and they can't discern differences, they can't even discern that they are different from everything that is around them or that they are in. And that's the first time anyone has explained autism in a way that makes sense to me. And I bet there are going to be listeners who have the same reaction. You know, um, so what, what type of movement would you use with a child like that? Well, uh, in the beginning, uh, what I realized, and actually there's no research, that just the last, there's one thing that was done 12 years ago, in just the last few months, stuff about autism and movement research, you know, scientific research and the brain is coming online, so to speak. And those children can actually be diagnosed very early on because when they start like rolling to the side and then to the belly, those who are able to do it, many of them are very, very uncomfortable being on the belly and then sitting and standing. The movement, the way they even roll, just begin to roll, is very different than you know healthy children, typically developing. Mm-hmm. They do it with a lot less differentiation. You see, the perception of differences, the brain's ability to sense this versus that versus you know in a more and more refined way is interrupted with these kids. So they they move in a clunky, chunky way. You know that's why they look robotic. Right. Right. And and so actually. Uh, I, I, I did a, actually uh, in-service, uh, no, grand, grand Rounds it's called, you know, in a local hospital. Yes. He fought mm-hmm. the pediatricians and talk, talk to them about it because they could actually start diagnosing the possibility of autism just by the way children roll. Mm. If people 
people understood the centrality of movement and the process of differentiation that happens, many things can and can be seen a lot sooner, and it's, of course, a lot better because that's when everything forms, including cognition and language. So how about we just start addressing it when they're four months old and three months old and six months right. old? And Yeah, anyway, not wait till they are behind to know that they're behind. Right, right, so, right. So uh, anyway, but uh, I'm trying to remember also what I'm answering. Uh, oh, the move, the type of movement. Right. Yes, the type of movement. What I do uh, very often with these kids is I, I actually put them lying down so they, or they're in their parents' lap if they're not comfortable being, you know, on the table right away. And I start doing movements uh, very often, starting to move very, very gently. That's another part of the essentials. That's one of the ways you get the brain to perceive differences well. You go slow and you reduce the effort. Mm-hmm. And and you, I move their pelvis. In the beginning, let's say, if I start moving one side of the pelvis a little forward or backwards, either it doesn't move at all or everything moves with it like a piece, you know, the lower oh, back, yeah, the yeah. and everything. So very, very slowly, but by going very slowly, there's all kinds of variations of movement that I can do that gradually get the, let's say, the left hip to move relative to the vertebrae that start twisting relative to the shoulder, relative to the head. Mm-hmm. And the moment there start being more differentiation, immediately there's online, just on YouTube, if people Google Anad Baniel and then Jonathan, they can see the first session with this kid where after a few minutes that I work with him, he looks me straight in the eye for the very first time in his life, looking anybody straight in the eye. Uh, and and then he realizes that I'm touching his foot and touching him, and and then he smiles. Uh-huh. And he was, uh, I think, 22 months. It says in the video, but I think he was about 22 months, and he was just diagnosed. And at the end of that lesson, it was the first time that he started saying some words and responding to language. So it's almost like you shift the brain to a different quality of functioning, and then all of a sudden they can do a lot of things. This you is improve the brain. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. fascinating. We have more to talk about with Anat Banil when we come right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. 
Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, and we're speaking with Anat Banyal today, founder of the Anat Banyal Method, and we've been talking about this amazing process, Anat, that you have honed and put together and evolved that is, it, it, it is nothing but remarkable. I mean, it is it, it, unbelievable is almost the word I want to use, except that I know that there's evidence that it's working, and it has for years. So, you know, and this is about, as you say, um, taking advantage of the brain's ability to change itself and then taking advantage of the, the body to then connect to the brain in a certain way. So... Talk a bit about, uh, in your book, you talk about the concept of fixing to connecting. What do you mean by that? Uh, what I mean by from fixing to connecting is that when a child, and also, by the way, adults, like if they had a stroke or something, when there is a problem, a child is not developing properly or there's a spastic arm because due to brain damage or whatnot, the initial inclination and the general tendency which is fully understandable, is to want to fix the problem, to fix the child, mm-hmm. fix the arm, to fix the... Take a child on the autism spectrum and fix their social, you know, you know, dysfunctionality. Or So you sit them down and you train them to say good morning and goodbye and so on. And... <clears throat> And it works to a certain extent some of the time, and sometimes it's counterproductive and can, can create actually increased limitation. But either way, trying to fix another person on a functional level, you, you know, it's, it's a... It, it's the lowest or it's a lower level approach to the potential there is for recovery mm. and improvement. Uh, what I found to be the most important and, and most powerful way to approach creating an, an opportunity for positive, for great possibilities is connecting with a person and helping the person connect to themselves. Mm-hmm. So when I think of a child and the brain, that the child of the brain is a fifth of its size in terms of connections and weight that it will be uh, later on in life, and everything in terms of skill has to be still formed, the brains, our brains are formed in the community of brains. 
So the famous story of the boy that grew up with the wolves and never was able to stand upright and walk like a mm. human being, I would imagine that the child that was able to survive amongst wolves was exquisitely good at movement. Let's put it this way. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> so the reason he couldn't stand up and didn't stand up, it was because he wasn't in a community of brains that st- or people that stand up. And, and when it, what we can do as one human to another is connect with the other person. And I do it through mo- movement and touch, like touching somebody, helping them to move, or through verbal instructions or combinations of things. But connecting to the, with them in such a way that we facilitate for the other person to begin feeling and noticing what's happening in them. Hmm. Because that's the basis of the information from which they can learn. We learn from within. We learn each child reinvents the wheel from scratch. Every child has to learn to speak from scratch. Right. You, you, can't, you can't put it on top of somebody else. So I'll give you a very concrete example. So let's say I'm working on, uh, on a child that had the, if we talk about ch- children, I'll do the exact same thing, by the way, with an adult, who had a stroke. And they, so for a child, the arm never got to learn how to move, and for the adult, they lost some of their ability or all of the ability of the arm to control it, right, to move it. I, let's say if I pick up that arm, I usually wouldn't actually start with the arm anyway because I wouldn't start where the maximum trauma is, but that's a whole other conversation. But let's say I'm at the point where I touch the arm and I start mm-hmm. lifting it. I don't lift it to stretch it and to make it do what it can do. I lift it so delicately and so attuned with the other person so I can feel where and how much this arm can actually move. And I Mm. won't take it beyond what it can do. This Mm. is almost like I'm becoming one with the other person. Mm. And I go where they can go and then, uh, and I see what, could they do now that would facilitate a little bit for the arm to move? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if I want to lift my right arm up, actually, if I r- rolled my pelvis and arched my back over to the right and moved my head a little bit over to the right, every arm will m- lift a little easier, a little more. So I start getting things that can help, and they get the person to feel how to do it, and Almost always, without exception, and it's quite miraculous, I work with kids and I just do stuff because also the brain organizes the whole body. It doesn't ever organize just the arm. So I get the rest of the body to move as if the arm is moving and you look at an arm that, you know, was fisted due to, you know, spastic paralysis and without ever touching it, gradually it gets free. And gradually they can start rotating the wrist. And gradually, and it just keeps going on and on and on like that. And then we go also to the arms. So that's connecting. You connect with a person. You, you, you become yourself a, a great tool mm. that can feel what's going on. And in their world, you start feeding them in. And uh, so, so that is 
what I mean by connecting. And let me tell you what I make it a little more understandable by talking about the opposite of that. Mm. And so the opposite of that is that you take you take a, 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 a for instance the same child. Let's say that the arm is paralyzed. They can't move it. The brain is contracting those muscles all the time because it's lost. You, you know, it's lost brain cells and there's no differentiation. Anyway, it can't move. And you start stretching it. It's painful for the child. Mm. So they start crying. And, and they, they, they get anxious. And they cry and people keep doing it. Mm-hmm. So the arm starts getting associated with pain and fear. With pain. Oh, boy. And then physiologically, neurophysiologically, when a muscle is short, when you pull on it, it activates what's called the stretch reflex, and it will get even more spastic. Hmm. And then if you try to make them crawl or stand up before they're ready, the excitation in the brain and the fear will get that arm to contract. So they associate a contracted, limited arm to everything they do. To change that is really hard. But if you take that child and there's still nerves connecting the brain to the arm, Almost without exception, when we get those kids young, the, the arm, sometimes not 100%, but they get a whole lot more use of the arm. It stops being so spastic. And then other things that happen with it, they don't get scoliosis. They, they, they use, you know, the head moves equally to both sides, so the eye and the vision work better, on and on and on and on. So you really have to work with, you have to connect to the person and get them to connect to themselves and discover possibilities from where they are through the mechanisms that we use, movement, attention, gentle, slow, variations, everything that gives them the facility to feel and sense and perceive differences and grow. You know, that really gives a whole new level of meaning to muscle memory. I mean, when I think about, oh, my gosh, you know, if they have the slightest bit of pain where they haven't felt anything, then, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where the memory is going to begin to happen. And and that is just, I don't think I've ever thought about that. And the... Really, you know, and the the other thing that brings up for me is how so in tune the you and the team you have who do this work have to be with not only the person but with yourself because you oh, have to. Oh, this is a beautiful right? observation. Oh. You know, I, I'm going to be mentioning you know the training program that we t- I train practitioners. And and the the fundamental process of the whole training is to get the future practitioners more in tune with themselves, more differentiated themselves, more evolved. Because this is really the process of human evolution. Mm. This is the, it's literally the evolution. You start with a less differentiated system, less complex, less refined. And through this process, you get more refined, more complex. You get greater freedom as a result. You can do, you get more creative. You, you can do a lot more. 
And and think just about how you differentiate the move. I mean, the muscles and the bones of the fingers don't change, but mm-hmm. when you learn to play the piano or violin, you sure change how you use them. And the change is in the brain; it's not in the muscles. So the memory of the pain is in the brain associated to specific movements or muscles. And by the way, the brain is built to avoid pain. Pain means danger, means possible mm-hmm. self-destruction. So right. this is very core. So when we try to train ourselves through pain, we are actually moving forwards and backwards at the same time. Right, right. You know, and the so, brain retracts connections around pain, yeah. So I think about people who have traumatic brain injury, and we only have a couple minutes left, but I, when I think about, for instance, um, vets that come back from war and have traumatic brain injury, and, you know, what an issue that is these days, and... You know, this process seems like it could be very useful to them. Incredibly so. Right? Incredibly so. When I see things about what they're actually doing today to treat them, it seems very painful, a little bit that I've learned about it. And so what you're saying is that there's a way to do this without that much pain. Well, actually, there's a way to revolutionize the whole process. Mm. And the way to revolutionize the whole process is to understand that really the lost function combined with the trauma and the disorder and the, you know, and very often PSTD and all that stuff is that you really have to take these people. It's very important to get them to move and come back to life as soon as possible. So I totally agree with that part. But what you do when you get them to move is very different from what I would do because you see, when somebody, there's a, let's say just the direct injury to the brain, to ask people to do what they can't do, they're going to do their best. But what they will do is not what you ask them to do because they can't. And uh-huh. the brain has no choice but to, to form the patterns and the connections based on its own experience. Right. So what, you really, what we really do when we do it that way is we drive people smack into the jaws of their limitations. Mm-hmm. And and they get they learn very quickly what they can and what they can't do, and it becomes very powerful and, and very hard to change. Right. Now, when they are stuck in their limitations, we say it's because of the brain injury, which is sort of true. Mm-hmm. But, they, but the ceiling of achievement is not due to the injury. The ceiling of achievement is due to the way we try to help them. That and is, that, that is, is terribly profound. central, and I've been yeah. starting to say that for absolutely the last couple profound. years. Does that make sense, what I just It said? makes absolute sense, and I, I feel like we could talk about this for hours, and we've come to the end of the show. So I, I, uh, <laughs> this is a profound work that you are doing, and not, so I know people want to know more. How can they do that? Well, first of all, my website is a good initial source, which is, uh, anatbanielmethod.com. It's A-N-A-T-B-A-N-I-E-L-M-E-T-H-O-D.com. And I, um, and I, I probably will have the link to my site or on your site. I'm not sure how it works, but uh, then they can all, on the site I have, I'm going to be teaching a, a series of workshops around the country about my work with children's special needs, which are also very useful for adults if they want to come and just do, do it for themselves because I always do movement lessons and explain the theory and so on so people really can go through 
uh, immediate and, and wonderful, uh, you know, changes. And you can find that uh, on my site. And this coming weekend in my center in San Rafael, California, uh, I have a one-day workshop, and I think we have about four or five spaces left. So if anybody wants to come, that would be fantastic. And um, I also offer uh, training programs, and we open them once every two years. And the next uh, professional training is opening the end of May of this year. And, again, people can uh, find information and talk to my person, Ed, who is the enrollment person, through the website. So, and also lots of uh, v- videos on, on YouTube. Well, thank you, Anat. You have been a wonderful blessing, and I look forward to having you back on Leading Conversations again. Anytime. I love talking with you. I love your questions, and I love you. Oh, thank you. So remember, everyone, (laughs) to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.